Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, a return visitor to Behind the News, the political scientist Corey Robin, author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, just out from Metropolitan Books. Corey, who teaches at Brooklyn College in the CUNY Grad Center, was on the show in 2013 when his book The Reactionary Mind was first released, and again in 2017 when the updated edition was published. He's been on this show at least five other times, going back to 2004, which is almost prehistorical, when he was here to discuss his book Fear, the History of a Political Idea, which appeared during the wild and crazy days of the War on Terror. For most people, Clarence Thomas is something approaching a cipher. All they know about him is that he harassed Anita Hill and that he doesn't talk much from the bench of the Supreme Court, where he's served for almost 28 years. That tenure makes him the longest-serving member of the current lineup. He succeeded Thurgood Marshall, the court's first black justice, Thomas is the second. Despite that long tenure, and despite having written about 700 opinions, almost no one knows anything about his political philosophy. In fact, it's quite serious and thought out, though quite reactionary. As Corey argues, Thomas is a conservative black nationalist, and both parts of that phrase are important. Thomas was quite a radical in his youth, a left black nationalist of late 60s, early 70s vintage, and although he moved right later in the 70s, he's retained a lot of his black nationalism. He thinks white people hold black people in deep contempt, and there's nothing we can do to change that. He believes that black Americans should withdraw as much as possible from white society because they'll never be accepted. It's fascinating how much his point of view has in common with some doctrines usually associated with the left, such as Afro-pessimism. Corey has spent much of the last decade studying the right from the left, although unlike me, he never suffered a bout of conservatism, as I did in late adolescence. I'm grateful for that ideological detour, because it made me intimately familiar with how the right thinks. I only wish the right were as marginal today as it was in 1971. Corey's thesis about the right is that it's always drawing energy from the left, that it's literally reacting to assaults on hierarchy and established power coming from below. The current Thomas can himself be seen in part as a reaction against his younger self, although, as we'll hear in the interview, there are also continuities between the radical leftist of the 1970s and the radical rightist of today. I'm normally allergic to anything about the Supreme Court. I find it a deeply reactionary institution designed to thwart popular rule in the name of elites, and I can't stand the way people handicap the votes on court decisions like they're analyzing a baseball lineup. There's a way in which liberals who distrust the mob look to it as a font of elite expert rule, but aside from the Warren years, its main business has been protecting established power. But I overcame my antipathy to reading anything about the Supreme Court, please don't call it SCOTUS, for this book, and I'm very glad I did. Though Thomas is deeply conservative, he's also deeply fascinating and a very readable writer for a jurist. Here's Corey Robin with more. So insofar as any but he gives much thought to Clarence Thomas, you know, outside uh, the uh, the rarefied realm of Supreme Court fans. He doesn't talk much. Uh, maybe people have heard that he's like Scalia's puppet, or was Scalia's puppet. That's really not true. There's a lot more to this character than uh, that caricature, right? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot we could talk about and go into. It, yeah, but, absolutely. but uh, what attracted you to writing about him in the first place? I stumbled on this by accident. Um, there are two political scientists who were preparing an anthology of essays on African-American political thought, and they approached me about writing a chapter on, uh, on Thomas. I said no at first. I had no interest. I was done with the reactionary mind. I didn't want to write about the right anymore, but you know, I was persuaded to do it. And the second I did, two things really jumped out. One is his biography, which is very little known, and we could talk some more about it in his past. But two was actually his style of writing. If you've read Supreme Court opinions, you know, it's a pretty dry terrain. And his opinions were the opposite. They just breathed personality. This self just leapt off the page and grabbed you strongly. And I would say the only two other Supreme Court justices in the current court who even come close in terms of their rhetorical power and their attack is Roberts and Kagan. The rest of them is just sort of the blather of those legal opinions. But Thomas's are not like that. He just, there's a, a ferocity and a directness to his writing that made it interesting. Well, let's talk some about his, his biography, early days. Uh, started in, in, in rural south and then moved to the city and uh, was not pleased with the transition. No, not at uh, all. But he grew up very much at the bottom of the class ladder, right? And this, that left a mark at him forever. It's complicated. So... He moved from Pinpoint, Georgia, where he was born, which was a kind of coastal town on, in Georgia that was founded by former slaves. And at the age of six, he moves to Savannah, and he moves in with his, ultimately with his grandfather. Uh, he's dark-skinned, and he speaks with a Gullah Geechee dialect and an accent. 
so instantly he's marked and stigmatized. And he says, you know, his first real experience of the color line was not at the hands of whites with whom he had very little to do with, but of other black people. And he was... His early days were entirely black environment. Yes, very much so. And he was relentlessly teased. Uh, they called him ABC, America's Blackest Child. Um, they said if he's, you know, if, if, he's, if he's any blacker, he'd be blue. The whole role of what we, you know, what's called colorism and sort of the being dark-skinned, coupled with then the kind of the class divide within the African-American community was a real mark on him. And he, he came to associate light-skinned black people with the professional class. That was the, the civil rights liberalism that he detested. Exactly. So later on, he's going to really attack people like Patricia Harris and Drew Days, who were both in the Carter administration and then the Clinton administration. And he's going to see them as emblematic of, yeah, exactly that. But his grandfather is a sort of a complicated figure here because on the one hand, he was uh, self-made. He owned his own business, but he really, you know, really a real story of somebody who created himself from almost nothing. But he was successful. So Thomas's class position is a little bit complicated on the one hand from a sort of Weberian status sense. He's really at the bottom. But economically and materially, he ended up, you know, probably better off than a lot of other African-Americans. And he went to Catholic schools. And he went to a private school. Yeah, a Catholic school um, that his you know, grandfather put him through. He had new clothes, you know, he had, you know, fresh meals, all that you know, kind of stuff that other kids you know, had hand-me-downs and so forth. So he was materially a little bit better, but there was this permanent sort of sense of stigma that he was really kind of at the bottom of the totem pole. And he had a good feeling for him, I'm sure nostalgia is the right word, but certain aspects of Jim Crow life in that black people lived in a very separate society with their own institutions and didn't have to trouble themselves with whites. And so, you know, that class position you're talking about within the black community, his grandfather would not have been very rich in, in, the, in the white world. Right. But in the black world, he's quite well off. Um, so that, that, that's this kind of vision of uh, or nostalgia for uh, that separate society uh, carries through to the present, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, he's been very upfront about this, about, you know, he said, I've been accused of wanting to turn the clock back. And that's true. I do want to go back in time. You know, I'd like to go back to the time when we had our own schools. He's also very aware of the brutality of the color line and what it entailed. But he also thinks that there, this was a moment when black men in particular could rise to sort of positions of power like his grandfather did. His grandfather was also, you know, ended up being quite respected in the black community. He funded the NAACP. He did all kinds of stuff. The nostalgia that's there is really for this figure of the black patriarch, who is, is a kind of figure of beneficence and protection and authority uh, above all else. Very masculinist. Yes, extraordinarily masculinist. And, th- and this is going to play a huge role uh, in his jurisprudence. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of places you could look for it, but there was one case in particular that I was struck by, the the name of which now I just forgot, but it was a a criminal justice case. I won't get into the technicalities of the case, but there's a good part of the case where he's comparing these two black men, uh, one of whom is, is a part of the case who's the criminal, the accused, and one of whom is not. This one black man is a real figure of authority and kind of... uh, pulls himself up by his bootstraps. The, the other is a ne'er-do-well and becomes a, a murderer. Alito joins his opinion, but he stop, He won't join that part of the opinion because he's, you know, he's like, what, what's going on here? But it's very much this sort of celebration of a certain kind of black masculinity versus a kind of black masculinity that he really wants to critique. And, of course, the protecting the women is yes. a very important part of the role of the black man. Very much so. So, again, in his criminal justice opinions, oftentimes the, the victim figure there is a black woman protecting black women that's kind of the role that they play black women in this whole sort of dreamscape is as as victims that need to be protected by black men his view of race what is race to him it's not like something like barbara fields would say race is something that's created constantly recreated constantly through activity law and practice it seems like something is timeless essential and unbridgeable and unchangeable absolutely he says at one point what's the origins of racism you know we don't know he seems to think of it as, you know, not only all those things that you just mentioned, but also as a very psychological theory of race. It's in the two aspects of it that I think are very important to him is he's, he's very big on unconscious bias, which is interesting, which makes him much more similar to a lot of contemporary social psychology theories of race. He's not just somebody who focuses on overt acts of racism. He also thinks there's unconscious prejudice and unconscious bias that influences us in all sorts of ways. 
And then there's also about racial stigmas, which is also a big part of the social psychology of race, that it is a kind of attribution or a marking of black people as having some kind of deficit, usually of intellect, usually of talent, usually of skill. It's interesting. It's not usually of moral character for him. It's usually of, of intellect, talent, and skill, which instantly shows you it, it, it's a kind of theory of race that would belong to somebody who's kind of in the professional managerial class where there's sort of doubts about your intelligence and all that kind of thing that would be very important to somebody like him. But it's very much a focus on racial attitudes, uh, I guess would be the simplest way of putting it, the kind of beliefs that white people have about black people. And that's also very important. It's about white and black. It's not really about other kinds of brown people or, or people of color more yes, generally. Yes, there's one passage where you said, maybe American Indians. Yes, but, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a very dramatic passage where he says, if you were to organize people along racial grounds politically, in the political sphere, black people are the most despised group. They'll always get the hell beat out of them, I think he says. They'll always come out on the bottom, except for maybe American Indians. Now, this is a view of race that uh, actually has some affinities on the left, right? And like, Afro-pessimism yeah. uh, has a lot in common with this. Having worked through Thomas's attitudes on race, what does that tell you about the left understanding of race? So, you know, this is a difficult question um, that I raise very tentatively in two parts, of very brief parts of the book at the, at the very end and in the introduction. Um, but I was struck in, in reading Thomas's uh, corpus, just how strong the thesis of racial pessimism is, that he really does believe racism is a kind of foundational and ineradicable part of the American polity, and that the American polity cannot in any way, shape, or form accommodate a transformation of that condition. And that is a thesis that you find on parts, uh, particularly, you know, more the academic left. Leftists would say in response that they want to trans- they want to do something about that. Uh, that, that when they are excavating this sort of terrain of deep hostility to black people, deep racism, the point they would say is not to essentialize it, but to identify it, you know, in a kind of almost a Marxist way as, a, as an object of critique that, that can be, then be overthrown. The problem, I think, is, is that they don't have the sort of institutional political levers for that overthrow. Um, it becomes more of a moral position, uh, you know, that you're anti-racist and that can be problematic for politics. Well, I believe he said something to the effect that he doesn't understand how focusing on something can make it go away either. Right? Yeah. This is one of his you know, critiques of affirmative action, that if you use race in order to get beyond race, he thinks you're just actually perpetuating the system. Uh, not in the way most conservatives would say. But I, I think that's the real challenge for the left is, and this again goes back to Thomas's biography, You know, he comes of age... Uh, he's a black nationalist on the left um, as he comes of age, and we can talk some more about that. But he's coming of age at a moment, and politically, when the civil rights movement, the, free, the black freedom struggle, is really in recession. It's beginning to have a real sense of deceleration and defeat. And that sense of defeat really hangs over Thomas and very much influences his time on the left and also then his transition to the right. And what I would say, that the, the, the centerpiece of that vision of defeat is the idea that any kind of politics that is trying to address the racial divide in America, any kind of politics is doomed to failure. And that can be the most mainstream electoral politics or it can be the most radical, revolutionary left kind of politics. It's very much an anti-political vision. And I think that's something that the left really struggles with today, not just on the question of race, but on a whole host of things. You know, whenever I hear anybody on the left poo-poo the idea of universal health care. You'll never get it through the Senate. I think to myself, well, if you don't think you can get health care through the Senate, how do you think you're going to tackle the racial divide, integration, things like that? There's just this very deep sense of political futility. But this is one of Hirschman's, uh, yes. the, the trio of, uh, of conservative uh, yes. resistance to any kind of reform. Right. Albert Hirschman, the social theorist, wrote this book, The Rhetoric of Reaction. And he said there's three tropes of right-wing sort of thought. One is perversity, which is if you do something to, to remedy a situation, you'll actually create the opposite. You'll, you'll, you'll reinforce the situation. That's perversity. There's jeopardy, which is if you try to fix a problem, you may fix it, but you'll create another problem or you'll make something worse on, on a different front. And then what he thinks is the most dangerous kind of right-wing trope is futility, which is that these problems are so endemic, so deeply structured, that any kind of political maneuver 
is just cosmetic and won't touch it at all. And the, and the, the really corrosive point he makes is that futilitarian arguments on the right bear a kind of resemblance to structural arguments on the left. And I think there's a certain amount of truth to this. Um, and it, it explains some of the migration from left to right that you see throughout the 20th century. And in Thomas's case, very much so, which is he wasn't horrified by the, ra- the, the extravagance of the left, the radicalism of the left. What he was ultimately marked by was the deep failure of the left to actually transform significantly in his mind the condition of African-Americans. I'm speaking with the political scientist, Corey Robin, author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas for Metropolitan Books. Well, let's talk about that ideological revolution, evolution rather. He was quite on the left. He said uh, George McGovern was too conservative for him. Yep. So uh, what, what kind of leftist was he exactly at what, what period? He goes north in 1968. He goes to Holy Cross, which is a Catholic university outside of Boston in Worcester. He had been in seminary, actually, I didn't talk about this in the book. He had been in seminary in Missouri for a year. He was studying to be a Catholic priest, and he leaves. Um, Catholicism is a big part of him. It is. I don't address it too much uh, in the book, but it is certainly, you know, he was was being, uh, as I say, trained to be a Catholic priest, and his grandfather was Catholic and wanted him to be a priest. And he leaves at the end of the first year at Missouri uh, in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, because of the kind of glee he sees in the seminary over the assassination. And then he gets recruited to go to Holy Cross, which is also a Catholic school, but more secular. Instantly, he's part of a cohort of 18 black students who are recruited. It's part of a big effort to kind of start integrating the school. Um, This liberal Jesuit, uh, Father Brooks, John Brooks, I think was his name, led this effort. And Thomas, and it's actually quite, it turns out to be quite a, an illustrious cohort, it includes Edward uh, Jones, the, the Pulitzer Prize novelist, Stan Grayson, a whole bunch of people who go on to bigger things after that. Uh, so it's a very sort of ambitious group of people. Thomas is the poorest, uh, one of the poorest of them, and from the South. And they're all instantly radicalized, um, very much in part by the assassination of King. And so it's a kind of, uh, you know, quite typical, actually, experience of, especially for someone like Thomas, of of Southern students going to the North. Um, They form the Black Student Union. Calling it the Black Student Union is a very deliberate political choice. It had been popular on the West Coast to call people, uh, for African-Americans to call themselves Black. And it's a sign of kind of growing radicalization on the East Coast. On the one hand, they push for all kinds of measures of inclusion, more black professors, more black, uh, more black literature. They have a whole manifesto that, that they set out. Thomas is the secretary treasurer. He types up the manifesto. And then they have, you know, all kinds of positions about black men not being involved with white women. And there are all kinds of rules about this. Um, if anybody breaks the rules, they convene a kind of mock trial. And uh, in one instance... Uh, it didn't seem like the punishment was too severe. Though. Yeah, it was uh, breaking his Afrocomb. But Thomas is known for taking this stuff much, much more seriously. Um, if he sees interracial couples on campus, he says, you know, is that a black man with a white woman that I see? He's very outspoken and about And he changed this. his mind on that topic. Yes, he does. Uh, not, but not until 1986 when he meets Virginia Lamp and then he changes his mind about it. But he's, he's quite insistent on it. And he, they also have, you know, quite militant. They lead, there's a huge demonstration against General Electric that results in punishment against a group of students. And then in protest of that, Thomas helps, it's his idea actually, to organize a walkout of all the black students off campus. He reads Malcolm X. He's very much indebted to the Black Panthers. Uh, he supports Kathleen Cleaver and Angela Davis, who's in the Communist Party. He's really part of this kind of formation of black left militancy with a very strong sort of black power, Malcolm X, black nationalist inflection, and really is quite critical of integration as an idea, believes in separate black institutions. Um, there's a kind of valorization of black violence. Um, there are a lot re- of continuities. With- yes, a lot of this stuff, there's a lot of continuity, as we're going to see it with Thomas on the Court, which is the kind of one of the surprises of, of, of the book and of, my, you know, of the research that I engaged in. But he's really, among a group of very active militant students, he's actually known as in all the reporting as, as, as one of the kind of the epicenters of it all. I've run into people who were either on the white left or the black left in the Boston area at the time who say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we knew about Clarence Thomas. Uh, you know, he goes to Boston for demonstrations. And, you know, in fact, there's a very funny moment in his Senate confirmation hearings 
where I think it was Hal Heflin says, you know, what did you major in? And he says, English literature. And he said, what did you minor? And he said, well, I think it was protest. <laughs> um, and so it was a big part of who he was. And then how do you start moving to the right? So he goes to Yale Law School, which turns out is quite a negative experience for him. And really, he's part of an affirmative action program. And he feels very marked by that. He feels like he's constantly being questioned about his intelligence. Obviously, part of it was that he had been, um, you know, he graduated quite high from Holy Cross. He's thrown into this situation. The competition is much more, uh, is much tougher. And he works very hard. But the condescension uh, that he feels is pretty intense. And it's, it's not what he's used to, because what he's used to is in the South, you're not good enough uh, coming from overt racists. Well, like many people, he found something refreshing about the South because it was so direct. Absolutely. Where the Yankees are so indirect in their racism and yes. patronizing, you know, rapid and good intentions, but it's... My argument is, is that he really comes to his worldview in the North. It's actually not in the South. The South, there's a kind of, it's again, it's the clarity of Jim Crow. And in the North, it's the obfuscation of Jim Crow. It's the professions of benevolence. It's the profession of goodwill, always in the form of the kind of the white liberal, the well-meaning white liberal, who then stabs you in the back and re- or or reminds you of the help that they've given you. It's just kind of this mind, um, honestly, that I think he experiences. But also, we should say this is also to be found in a lot of the rhetoric of Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael. And Charles Hamilton, Black Power. In fact, there's a speech, you know, the famous speech that Malcolm X gives about you know, the wolves versus the fox. And the one that really shows their teeth is the Southern racist. Uh, and the one who kind of hides and pretends is, you know, the Northern fox. So Thomas has his own version of this, which is the, um, the rattlesnake and the water moccasin. Uh, you know, one is overt, you know, obviously hostile to you. Uh, and that's the Southern white reactionary. And the other is professing to be your friend and on your side, but stabbing you in the back. And, and again, always reminding you that you're here because of me. Well, he has a really interesting critique of affirmative action, that it's uh, a scheme to perpetuate white supremacy. Yes. Like, like... Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to be said about this, like the, the standard uh, conservative, white conservative line on affirmative action is that it violates principles of colorblindness. The, the rules should be formally equal between everybody. And so... Affirmative action, insofar as it invokes race or takes race into account at all, is a violation of that. And that the primary victims of affirmative action are white people. Um, Scalia says it's, you know, it's the kid of the Polish factory workers, the white ethnic. And you could see how someone like Scalia could develop this. This isn't Thomas's argument at all. He thinks the primary victim of affirmative action are black people uh, and that they are um, stigmatized in the same way that all black people were stigmatized under slavery, whether they were free or not. Blackness was a marker of inferiority, a badge of inferiority, to use the language of Plessy versus Ferguson. And this is language that Thomas quotes in his affirmative action opinions. He says, affirmative action is a kind of stigmatization of inferiority. And this is also very important. Unlike some white conservatives, he doesn't say that affirmative action like, creates racism, or anything like that. He's not saying it imposes a new stigma. He says, look, there's a pre-existing stigma attached to black people as they are in white society. And what affirmative action does is simply reinforce that stigma. And he makes a very interesting comparison. He said, look, I'm very aware, well aware that alumni children get legacy preferences. The difference is there's no stigma attached to it. So he's not making these kind of formalistic arguments. It's deeply rooted in a kind of sociology or social psychology of race. So that's one part of the argument, which I think is very different. The other part that I think gets even more unsettling is that he thinks what affirmative action is really a program. It's really for white people, that the white professional managerial class has this kind of uh, self-styling of, it, of itself as cosmopolitan and tolerant and, and urban and sophisticated, and that having people of color around them reinforces this kind of style. And Thomas doesn't even think that what diversity is about is like learning how to manage, be a leader in a diverse society. He doesn't think the American ruling class really cares about anything like that. It's what he calls a racial aesthetic. And it's as a word. He likes that word. Right? He does. And it appears over and over again aestheticist, racial aesthetics, racial aestheticist. It's a very cutting word. 
because, you know, in some sense, you know, I think we all know a little bit of what he's sort of talking about there. That, well, it you know, sounds like Walter Ben Michaels. It's very similar to uh, Walter Ben Michaels' argument, The Trouble with Diversity. What's so shocking, though, that these are in Supreme Court opinions. And they're there, and nobody pays any attention to it. Um, Why does nobody pay attention to them? Well, you know, it, they're well written. I mean, the things you quote. Yes. are very readable. It's not like you, like you said earlier. It's not your unbearable legal prose. No, he's not obscure. So you think people would want yes. to read these as yeah. interesting arguments, not standard issue uh, conservatism. No, not in the slightest. I mean, I think there are a bunch of reasons. I mean, I think the first reason we have to put this on the table is racism, to be honest with you. There are a series of accusations that attend Clarence Thomas, that he's stupid, the whole business about not asking questions, that, um, that his uh, clerks write his decisions for him, that Scalia... Uh, people said the same about Marshall, right? And what's shocking to, is, is that you find out that people said the exact same thing about Thurgood Marshall. People have completely forgotten about this. And it wasn't just the right that said this about Thurgood Marshall. Archibald Cox... The you know hero of American liberalism, you know Solicitor General under Kennedy and Johnson, the the, the Watergate uh, prosecutor fired by Nixon. He said that Thurgood Marshall has one skill, one talent, and that's for picking good clerks. Bob Woodward in in the the book on the Brethren says that Marshall uh, people liked him because uh, he told good dirty jokes, not because of his opinions. So there was a real stigma uh, that was attached. And I have to say, you know, the writing of this book, whenever I would talk about it to people, you know, it's just the same line on Thomas. Uh, you know, he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't write any opinions. And I'd say, yeah, you know, he's a cipher. He's stupid. Yeah. You know, he can't and, speak. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you'd say, well, he's actually has over 700 opinions. Uh, he's quite prolific. right? Very. And it's not just prolific. These opinions are long. Some of them go up as long as 100 pages. And the range of the citations, I mean, just... And they all bear a mark of this, a stamp of this personality in mind, right? Yes. Yeah, it's very distinctive. Um, these are, you know, distinctively Clarence Thomas opinions that, again, bear a lot of resemblance, um, the ideas to sort of some of the ideas he had earlier uh, in his career when he was on the left. We're listening to an interview with Corey Robin, author of the excellent book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, just out from Metropolitan. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of French disco by Stereolab. The near incomprehensible lyrics are, though this world's essentially an absurd place to be living in, it doesn't call for bubble withdrawal. It's said human existence is pointless as acts of rebellious solidarity can bring sense in this world. La resistance. And now back to Corey Robin, professor of political science at Brooklyn College and author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, just out from Metropolitan Books. Let's talk about some of those uh, these, these these cornerstone ideas. I mean, he really uh, basically thinks that black people should just give up on the state, give up on politics. Yeah, and there there's certainly that dovetails with a certain view, a conservative view of the world, and you know, just minimize the state. Black people should instead concentrate on building economic power. Yeah, it's a real uh, separatist vision. Yeah, here. very much so. So the the big influence here was Thomas Sowell, who is an economist, very conservative, who also actually has a Marxist past, actually but then becomes a PhD from the University of Chicago, uh, African-American economist. And he wrote this book, Race and Economics, in, which came out in 75, and it had a very big influence on Clarence Thomas. And the sort of the subtle through line of that book, which is sort of interesting now, given you know, the sort of revival of interest in the relationship between capitalism and slavery. But the very subtle through line of that book, not so subtle, actually, is that 
capitalism is the one social institution that white people cannot control. It's the one institution that they are under the thumb of as well. And you can see how somebody like uh, Clarence Thomas in the mid-70s, who's reeling from these political defeats, sees kind of a lifeline here that maybe the market, for two reasons. One, it's something that white people can't control. And if white people can't completely control the market, maybe black people could carve out a niche or a space for themselves. And one of the things that I found in my research, and there's this sort of burgeoning historiography that's really, really fascinating, is a lot of black power activists are experimenting with all sorts of capitalist institutions in the early 1970s. This is the time of Nixon's black capitalism, yes. too. And, and Richard Nixon makes these very direct appeals that black capitalism, I think in one of the ads or the speeches, is black power. He says that. When I used to think about this, it was just you know, such obvious pablum and, and all the rest of it, which it is. However, there was a reason he was doing this, which is that there is there's something happening among black activists on the ground where they're beginning to feel like, screw the state. We're not going to get, you know, the last big legislative initiative we had was in 1968. And there's a feeling that, you know, the condition, especially of poor working class African-Americans in the North is not being improved. Maybe we have to have more direct engagement with capitalism and the economy itself. And Thomas really takes this to heart. Now, is the vision of a separate black sphere, economic sphere, or to compete with whites in the broad capitalist market? So Thomas, it's very much a, a, a separate black sphere. He's not a celebrant of black wage labor, which distinguishes him from somebody, you know, from other black conservatives. He's very skeptical of this. And part of the reason why, and he talks about this in his memoir, is that um, invoking his grandfather, if you're black wage laborer, more than likely you're going to end up working for somebody who's white. So that will reprise the kind of experience of dependency and subjugation to the white state that you will have in all sorts in all sorts of other ways. So for him, it's really black male entrepreneurs, black entrepreneurs. And again, his grandfather plays this you know big outsized role in in his mind, um, who he thinks will kind of create a sort of separate black economy where they can employ black people and they can redistribute resources uh, to black. It's a people. very hierarchical separate society organized along class and gender lines. Very. I mean, the, the, the gender stratification is just very overt. I mean, he says at one point, you know, um, in the mid-1980s, you know, when he's well in the Reagan administration, you know, the salvation of our race depends upon black men. It's, it's straight up a vision of kind of black male patriarchy and definitely a kind of great degree of, of class stratification. He sees a very sharp distinction in the black community between the black poor and the black male entrepreneur, um, which is kind of a, this figure of salvation, as I said. And then there's the kind of black liberal elite who he wants to you know, have nothing to do with. But for him, capitalism is not just a means to an end, a, you know, prosperity, you know, all that sort of thing. But it's also the, the economic freedom is a moral good in itself. He wants to assert that. Yeah, very much so. There's a great important speech he gives uh, in 1987 at the Pacific Research Institute, which was kind of a libertarian think tank. I didn't know very much about it out in San Francisco. And he really talks there. It's actually a very fascinating speech. It's very proleptic in a lot of ways because he talks there about the scandal of money among liberals, about the scandal of the market. I mean, it's hard for us now to imagine this, but he's thinking... This is like of, ADA, Hubert yeah, Humphrey kind of liberals. Yeah, exactly. He's you know thinking about 1950s and 1960s, John Kenneth Galbraith. He, quote, you know, he attacks Galbraith. People who really... A kind of a liberal that was, he says, you know, very suspicious of money but instead valorized more idealistic spheres of, where, of speech, you know, professors, lawyers, and journalists. And what's interesting about this, uh, and I say this is very proleptic, is he starts saying that we need to restore to the market and restore to property and restore to money the kind of valorization that liberals attach to things like speech and belief, the kind of valorization of the First Amendment gives to speech and belief. And why this is important and interesting is Today, the most avant-garde part of the conservative right is not about campaign finance, which gets a lot of attention from liberals and people on the left. It's something called commercial speech jurisprudence, which is the idea, um, commercial speech, you know, is, the, is any kind of speech involved in an economic transaction. And the simplest form of this is advertising. It used to have no protection at all under the First Amendment, but it's come since the mid to late 1970s to get more and more protection. And Thomas on the court has really been in the forefront of this, but not just for advertising, 
but really starting to push for all kinds of other things. So the same-sex wedding cake case out of Colorado. The other conservatives talk about this as a question of religious freedom. Thomas's opinion really focuses on it as a question of um, political speech and political freedom. It's re-describing an economic transaction. He describes the, the, the cake maker as an artist. This is artistic speech and is expressing a kind of viewpoint that's not about religion, but you know, about, about just ideas about, about homosexuality and all the rest of it. But it, so it should therefore be protected under the First Amendment as a freedom of speech case. And again, this is the avant-garde amongst a lot of libertarians. And, and Thomas lays it all out in 1987 in this speech. And though he does have a libertarian leaning, um, he's not a standard issue libertarian individualist. Not at all. Not at all. Um, there's very little actual individualism. I mean, people, you know, mistake him sometimes as kind of, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of individualist. And Thomas is very frank that he owes his success to other people, first and foremost, his grandfather, and then to sort of other black institutions and the black family and all the rest of it. So it's not an individualist. It's not an atomized vision at all. And he believes, in fact, um, that black people really will depend upon institutions, uh, HCBUs um, and and so on. And again, sort of black patriarchy. So it's not an individualist uh, vision in the slightest. It sometimes seems like he views racist institutions as a form of tough love for black people. I, you know, Jim Crow, we talked about some, but he's quite enamored of the carceral state Yeah, and racist or not. Why does he love the carceral state so much? So it actually goes back to this issue about Jim Crow. This is, I think, the really conservative part of Thomas, that he believes conditions of adversity will produce these kind of heroic spirits like his grandfather, uh, within the black community, who will force their way forward. It's not a benign vision of meritocratic advance. These are like these thrusting spirits of tremendous will, tremendous stamina, tremendous vision that will just push their way and overcome these tremendous obstacles. And one of his huge big critiques of the Warren court and of sort of 20th century liberalism was um, that they dismantled these conditions of constraint. And that in the process of dismantling those conditions of constraint, they kind of weakened the will of African-American men. Well, I love the uh, parenting advice from Mitch Dechter, too, though. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, this is the other thing that's really important about this. So when I talk about some of these ideas of Thomas, they sound a little bit, you know, outlandish and and insane. And yet, if you do go back to the 1970s, Uh, and the 1980s. This was actually a fairly widespread belief across the board, um, uh, from conservatives to people on the left, the the whole idea of the crisis of authority. So for the conservatives, part of the crisis of authority is it creates disorder. But there's another argument, which is that the, 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 the decline of male authority weakens sons. It's sort of the removal of these authority figures. There's no overcoming to be had. And I should say, you know, Max Horkheimer, wrote a very famous essay in the 1930s on authority in the family. And this is part of the Frankfurt School. It's the decline of the bourgeois patriarch does not liberate young men. In fact, it creates this sort of therapeutic sort of state. Um, You see some of this in kind of Foucault as well, that more insidiously manages people. And a lot of this is in the air in the 1970s and the 1980s. You mentioned Midge Dechter. She writes this famous uh, piece in the Atlantic Monthly in 1975 that becomes one of her parents and children. She becomes a, a book she writes that I have. Thomas is very much of that moment. So for him, this is a long-winded buildup, um, the carceral state, this harsh, punitive state that he makes no bones about its brutality and often its racism, will recreate those conditions of constraint that will create a kind of new generation of stronger black men and will also create market actors. And that's the other part of this, is how important it is to kind of develop those habits of thrift and prudence and responsibility and all the rest of it, and that the carceral state can do that. The harsher it is, the more a black father uh, will teach his children. This is another instance of where the uh, the family values agenda fits nicely with the, the free market agenda. Very much so. I mean, Melinda Cooper's book um, is, you know, quite good about on some of this stuff. 
But here's this guy, you know, the Supreme Court laying these ideas out and nobody pays attention to it. And it's all there in, all, in a lot of his criminal justice decisions. Um, he has a, another decision coming out of Chicago about gangs, trying to get gangs off the street. Again, what's interesting is, you know, he points out, first of all, where the initiative comes from. And he's obviously a lot of black aldermen uh, in Chicago who are pushing for this. You know, just a side note, parenthetically, um, James Foreman Jr. has this great book, Locking Up Our Own, where he talks about the development of the kind of the carceral state in D.C. And a lot of it is pushed by black elected officials who resist decriminalization of drugs, for instance, because that's being pushed by white liberals uh, because they feel like it's going to decimate the black community. So one question I always get is, well, how could you be black nationalists and support, you know, the carceral state? Well, there were moments in time where a lot of black nationalist figures um, are very skeptical of decriminalization. And so he, again, comes out of that, that sort of tradition. And it really doesn't matter what goes on inside the prisons, right? Not at He's all. He's not interested in that at all. It's just the, the, the idea of punishment is what's important. It's very important. So some libertarian conservatives will say he has some liberalish decisions on sentencing. It gets very technical. We don't have to get into all the specifics, but if you read the decisions carefully, what it's really about is, is the purity of punishment, that it has to be announced publicly in a court of law. What punishment is, is the moment of sentencing. Everything that happens after that, it's like a black box, what goes on. In- <laughs> it could go on for 20 years. <laughs> exactly. And these, these decisions are really grisly, some, just some awful stuff that he just says, sorry, you know, cruel and unusual punishment refers to that moment of punishment. What happens after that? That's not what punishment means according to the Constitution. And he's a big fan of the Second Amendment. Very much so. How does that fit? Fits very much with the, with the black nationalism. I mean, his longest decision on the Second Amendment is a decision, McDonald versus Chicago. And it's all about whether or not the Second Amendment applies to the states. And what he uses it for is a whole rereading of the struggle over abolition and then the struggle over emancipation and reconstruction. And what he says is that arming black people, well, first of all, it was a central part project of the white supremacist South to disarm black people, to crush rebellions wherever they were, and then after emancipation to make sure that black people never got guns. And Thomas has a whole reconstruction of the struggle from abolition onward, where he liberally cites from Herbert Aptheker's book on slave revolts, Herbert Aptheker, the Communist Party historian, probably the only time he's cited as an authority in a Supreme Court decision as opposed to a defendant in a case uh, because he was also uh, blacklisted. And uh, he extensively cites from that and closes this Second Amendment opinion with this image of a young black son sometime in the 1880s who sees his father holding off these white supremacist terrorists who are coming to lynch the father but holding them off with a rifle. And it's a real image of salvation. That's, for Thomas, what black arms represent, is this image of black male salvation, protecting the black community against the white supremacist mob. Which is very different. You know, we view most Second Amendment uh, fans as you know, racist to some degree. Yeah, and of course, there's a reason for that. And in the jurisprudence as well, you know, the image that always comes up in a lot of Second Amendment jurisprudence is the white colonial, you know, the militia, the colonial militia. Or you think of the kind of the white suburbanite protecting their homes. That's not the image. He has another case, uh, Thomas has another gun control case, um, which is fascinating. It involves a black woman who had a gun in her house in, in, in San Francisco. And I did some research on her, and she turns out she was a big activist in the black community. So for him, it's black arms is, is, is really central. It's a very self-reliant vision. Very self-reliant. He's not a leftist by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, it's, um, it's separatist and self-reliant. But communitarian. Yeah, I mean, but not communitarian, patriarchal, I would yeah. say. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, more yeah. than, I mean, which some people think is, is coterminous with communitarianism. It may very well be. But yeah. How is he viewed uh, on the broader right? Mostly, he's a hero, you know, because most people on the right haven't uh, really read his opinions. Well, it's interesting. He repeatedly comes to conservative decisions, but not always by the same route as his colleague. Not not by any stretch. Sometimes he actually breaks with um, other conservatives on the court. With a cross-burning case. There's a cross-burning case. Um, He's the only person on the court. Um, It's kind of fascinating. Well, O'Connor had that ridiculous business about how it was sort of a folksy ritual. Yes. 
Yeah. And he says, no, it's just pure terror. Yeah, that's what he says. He said there's no pure expressive element to cross-burning, which is the position that all eight of the other justices do take. He says it's pure racial intimidation. His opinion last spring on, on this Mississippi, uh, Flowers versus Mississippi, which was a, a, a jury uh, trial case, he is very much of the belief that you want to preserve the ability of jurors uh, to, um, it's called preemption, to, to just, re- uh, I'm sorry, defendants to reject any potential juror, even if it's on grounds of race. And he makes the claim that, you know, this is the most important protection for black defendants is the ability to strike potential white jurors, even if there's no evidence that they have any kind of racial prejudice at all, because he says, you know, you get all white juries together, you know, essentially they're going to feed off of each other. So he does actually break with certain um, standard uh, conservative arguments. But I do think what's more interesting is what you just said. Because I get this question a lot. It's like, well, if he's really, you know, whatever, why doesn't he break with the right more? And what's more interesting is actually how often he's united with the right with this mode of reasoning um, that has these kind of very strong racial pessimistic over, you know, not overtones, but, you know, explicit. The eminent domain. Oh, God. Yeah. It's really interesting in that regard. The Kilo decision coming out of New uh, New London. I was going to say New Haven. Because the standard libertarian position would be property rights and all that. Exactly. But that's not his angle. No. He sees eminent domain, and you see, you know, he, he uses that decision, um, his dissent, to retell the whole story of um, urban renewal in America. Urban renewal with these programs where city would just kind of, Robert Moses, you know, would just lay claim to whole tracts of land in the name of eminent domain. And the takings clause of the, the Constitution says you can take private property if there's compensation and also for public use. And so Thomas uses this case to just, you know, this lengthy discussion of urban renewal in America. And he, you know, James Baldwin has this very famous quote that urban renewal was Negro removal. And Thomas cites the quote in the case. He doesn't credit it to James Baldwin. Um, but he says, and, you know, and the, and by the, the time you finish reading his opinion, Urban renewal is really, you see it as just this liberal form of ethnic cleansing. And that's how he sees it. Well, you know, I finished the book thinking, this is a really serious guy that we should take seriously. And nobody really does. No. How did studying him change you? Did it in any way? Yeah. First of all, you know, I'm not trained in African-American history and political thought, nor am I trained in constitutional law. So... I, you know, I know you have a, a, a very healthy skepticism about the Supreme Court. In a way, well, um, I was reluctant to read the book. First yes, of that, but then I, this is actually really interesting. Yeah, stuff. like there, you know, some some of this stuff is real political. There are real political ideas that are going on here, and it's one of the few places where you're going to find it. So there was that, but um, and I really came to a very different understanding about black nationalism. I think I had a kind of standard left knee-jerk liberal kind of like, oh, black nationalism is good. It's black power and all the rest of it. Cedric Johnson's book, From Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, uh, you know, really had a huge impact on me. Um, it's a real interesting, fascinating rereading of uh, sort of black power in the 1960s. And not just the sort of deeply conservative elements, um, but just the sort of the market turn. Um, that happens in sort of black power and black nationalist thought um, in this period. And, you know, and then there's this great book by a collection of essays, Julia Rabig, called The Business of Black Power. And just the enmeshment of sort of black power groups in the 70s with capitalist institutions. So all of that, you know, is really fascinating to me. And then I think the, the unease with racial pessimism that I came away with, and just this sense that we're really living in this moment, this extended moment since the 1970s. And I think, you know, on the left, we've known about this in terms of neoliberalism and, and so forth. But just the, the defeat of the black freedom struggle just had ramifications and, and radiation throughout the left in all kinds of ways because the experience of that defeat of not being able to destroy a social institution that many people thought might be able to be destroyed, that hits a generation and it doesn't just hit African-Americans who bear the brunt of it, it also, all the activists who are involved in it. And then they teach that lesson. And so you get someone like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. What is that that they learn? Like, don't use the state for progressive ends in a certain way. The market is the sphere in which all advance will happen. And a lot of that hard on crime stuff 
it wasn't just the Clintons. There's a real move within African-American community about getting tough on crime. You realize we've been, uh, you know, the, the epilogue of the book is Clarence Thomas's America. We are living in this moment that we've been with for a very long time and that the shadow of it hangs so heavily over us. And until there's a kind of political, an appreciation of the, the, the politics of that moment and the way it hangs over us, we're going to be stuck here for, for a while. So are you done with the right now? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm finished. This is it for me. That was Corey Robin, professor of political science at Brooklyn College and author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, just out from Metropolitan Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Youth Against Fascism by Sonic Youth. It contains the lyrics, I believe, Anita Hill, and what reasonable person doesn't. But it also includes some material about cross-burning that never could have anticipated Clarence Thomas's opinion on the subject. Till next week, bye. Black attack and fire is the song I